Well, good morning again. Uh, so we're kicking off a new series today, and um, hopefully it's going to be really timely and powerful in all of our lives. But, you know, I was thinking uh, just this, this over the past few days, as obviously there's been a lot of, uh, of news events that, that just pull at our hearts, and we don't know exactly how to reconcile our feelings, and um, outrage, disgust, um, all right, now what's going on, you know, with things burning down? And, you know, we start with like these two recent, very tragic, very horrific deaths of, of Mr. Arbery and, and Mr. Mr. Floyd. And, you know, that, that should do something to us. It should outrage us. It, it, it should burn in us with this holy anger, but it also should lead us to a sympathy and a compassion for those that it does affect much more directly than us. So I was thinking about that, and then obviously we're still in the middle of this like endless cycle of coronavirus news, and there's these really big events out there that force some questions from us about this text. But I don't want us to think that these questions are just for the big events that are newsworthy and are covered on every channel. These are the everyday questions that we're meant to ask and live under as Christians. And so here's some questions that the text forces on us. The first one, what does faith look like in the middle of all these events? What does faith look like in the middle of all these events? You see, because faith isn't a set of doctrines that you print on your website. Faith is also what does a transformed life look like and react to and respond and speak and act and do when the world is like this. Another question from the text. What does love look like in the middle of all this? What does love look like no matter your perspective? What does love look like no matter um, your ethnicity? What does love look like? The kind of love that's not the easy kind of love where I've got friends and I love them or family and I love them. The kind of love that only comes because the Holy Spirit is in us and one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And then the last one, what does hope look like? Because I promise you will always have a crushed heart If you walk through this life thinking that all the accounts are going to get settled here. Or everything is going to get made right here. You will be crushed by this world because this world is broken and it will be broken until Jesus comes back and makes it new. And so what does hope look like in the middle of despair? In the middle of outrage? In the middle of anger? In the middle of chaos? In the middle of a broken heart? What does hope look like? And I hope you realize those are the same questions we should be asking as we go to work every day. As we come home to our family every day, as we uh, face the challenges and problems that are normal and everyday, not newsworthy kind of stuff. What does faith look like in the middle of this circumstance? What does love look like? How does hope keep me going when it gets this hard? And so turn with me. We're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to introduce the book for us very quickly as we... As we launch on a new series. And so, quick introduction to, to 1 Thessalonians. It was written by Paul. Um, it says it right there in the first line. It says it several times throughout the text. Uh, Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy were the authors of 1 Thessalonians. Um, Paul, obviously, being the primary and the inspired author who's mentioned throughout it uh, as the author. Uh, it was written in roughly 51, 52 AD, uh, likely from Corinth. And so, it was one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. Um, and so it was written, uh, as they, they traveled over to Corinth, it was written to, 
the city of Thessalonica. And so Thessalonica was a key port city or a key uh, hub city in the region of Macedonia. It, it was a, both a natural harbor, a natural port was attached to Thessalonia. And so that was a huge uh, boom for a city as you became a major trade center through that. And so the town swelled to probably 200,000 people, which was huge back then uh, during, during the time of this, this writing. And not only was it a port city, it was also located on one of the major Roman roads called the Via Ignatia, which was a major east-west trade route from Rome all the way to Turkey. And so they were a major hub city where port or, or shipping trade came through there and east-west ground trade came through there. And so it was a, a major key city. It was a free city um, in, in that area. And so, again, it was big and it was important. And that's where Paul ends up. Um, he ends up there on his second missionary journey, which lasted from 49 to 52 A.D. Uh, and so he traveled through what's Macedonia which is, came from Acts chapter 16, the Macedonian vision, if you remember. Like Paul's like, I can't go here, the Holy Spirit won't let me. I can't go here, the Holy Spirit won't let me. And then he has this vision of a, a Macedonian man pleading with him to come. So he goes to Philippi. Philippi, he meets Lydia, the seller of purple, and starts a church in her house. And uh, there's a slave girl who, who made her masters a lot of money by fortune-telling. And uh, she is re- rescued. And uh, the Philippian jailer. So all that happens. And then they move to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, we, we find out about them, the ministry there in Acts 17, 1 through 9. So let me read that for you. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. And they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. And they acting against, uh, saying, and they acted against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king named Jesus. And the people in the city and the authorities were very disturbed to hear these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, they let he and the rest go. And so this is the founding of the church of Thessalonica. Paul is there for three Saturdays in the Jewish synagogue. And then some limited amount of weeks, likely with Jason's house as a, as a base of operation. And so I want you to think about this. The Thessalonian church had somewhere between four and eight weeks of Christian discipleship before they are a church that is left to function completely on their own. There's no Bible, right? It isn't written yet. Uh, there are no teachers. There are no Sunday school teachers. There's nobody trained in theology. There is the gospel word. There is the Holy Spirit. There is Paul's eight weeks worth of teaching. And it's like, here, you're, you're on your own now because Paul is ripped away from them by this violent mob. And so you see that's one of the purposes of the letter is Paul is ripped away and it has broken his heart. Like He wants to be face-to-face with them. He wants to check in with them. He wants to make sure they're standing firm in this newfound faith, but he can't. He's been removed, and now he's hindered from coming back. And that, that flows throughout the letter. And so he writes it, uh, and in the middle of it, he stresses relationships. He stresses that desire to be face-to-face. And, and so as I was reading this to prepare, I was like, 
you know, what a great illustration of what we're going through. Like, there's such a desire to be face-to-face, probably more than you've had in most of your Christian life ever, because you've never had to be without it before. But now that we've experienced what it's like to not be face-to-face, like, yeah, there's a longing and a desire when you're separated from the people you care about in Jesus to get back and, and be in the presence of the people that you have Jesus. Um, I want you to notice how in Acts 17, how, how, is, how is Christianity described when it gets to Thessalonica? Now, this is in the 50s, so, you know, 20 years since the resurrection. That's it. These are the ones who have turned the world upside down. Christianity has toppled the world on its head in 20 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by this point. Um, Breakdown of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, he is commending them because he has sent Timothy, he's checked in, and he's commending what he saw while he was there in ministry, and he's commending the report that Timothy came back. You guys are doing the deal. You guys are staying faithful. You guys, even when it's hard and even when you're suffering, you're doing it. And then chapters 4 through 6, grow. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't stop. And so it's two of the, uh, a word that's used multiple times in that transition chapter is more and more. You love, love more and more. You obey more and more. Right? And so it's this challenge to take where you are and keep going. Don't stop just because you, you are being faithful. Uh, a, few, a few themes as we go through. The first theme, the return of Christ. Every single chapter in this book, the return of Christ is mentioned. And so the return of Christ hangs over motivation. It hangs over going through suffering. It hangs over all of the different uh, other themes that are coming throughout this book. The second one, there's gospel boldness from pure motives. The gospel costs something in Thessalonica. And yet there's still a boldness attached to Paul proclaiming it and a boldness attached to their proclaiming it beyond themselves. The third thing I want you to mention, lives that show the reality of the gospel. So you're going to find throughout Thessalonians, powerful gospel message, authentic gospel life. Powerful message, authentic life. Powerful message, authentic life. It is always meant to be that way, that there is a matchup as as much as possible, an integrity between what we proclaim and how we live. And you're going to see that throughout the book of Thessalonians. And then the fourth thing, you're going to see relationship-based ministry. Throughout this text, imitation is going to be part of it. As we move forward, the desire to be face-to-face is going to be part of it. Um, uh, He's going to call himself a nursing mother to them. He's going to call himself a father who exhorts. He's going to say, I didn't just give you the gospel. I gave you my life. I gave you myself alongside of it. And so it is a relationship-based ministry that the, the, the delivery system of discipleship and the delivery system of evangelism is not Sunday school teacher, pupil, go home and I'll see you next week. It is the model of somebody who loves and wraps their life in relationship around the person to produce a disciple out of that person. And then the last one, suffering, shame, and affliction are very normal. They're very normal. It is the Christian standard. It is so standard that Paul's Christianity 101 for these believers that are less than eight weeks in a church, he said over and over and over again, I taught you how suffering was going to be part of that. Christianity 101 for Paul was persecution and suffering. It wasn't advanced level Christianity. It was normal, introductory Christianity. And then the main theme, in light of the return of Christ, share the gospel boldly, live a gospel-enhancing life, embrace genuine gospel community, 
so that you can endure through any affliction. So as I put those themes together, in light of the return of Christ, that's a motivator and a sustainer, proclaim the gospel, live the gospel, surround yourself in a community of gospel people, and that alone will be what sustains you to endure through everything you're going to face in this life, both in active opposition because of Christ and just the hardships that come with living in a fallen world. So with that, let's go to First Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. We'll pray and we will jump in. Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning uh, concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, fill us with faith that works that works in the real life world that's right in front of us. Fill us with love that labors, not in the abstract, not in our words only, but a love that actually goes to work in the real world, in the real relationships, in the real troubles that are in front of us. And then God, fill us and steady us with an unshakable hope, the kind of hope that comes because Jesus is coming back, not because our circumstances got better. The kind of hope that can sustain us to be active and faithful and walking right here, right now. When we want to resign or we want to give up or we want to quit or we want to enrage or we want to be in despair or we want to just explode. God, the kind of hope that stabilizes, the kind of hope that gives an endurance. Fill us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So give thanks for gospel impact. Give thanks for gospel impact. First, when you see evidence of salvation in the gospel's power. When you see evidence of salvation in the gospel's power, it should lead you to give thanks for gospel impact. And so I want you to do two things for me as homework. Very easy, very simple, and I believe very powerful. All right, so thing one, I want you to stop for however long it takes, and I want you to write down on a piece of paper five to ten things that you have seen God do in your life. Five to ten things where you've seen God work in your life. Five to ten things where you've seen growth in your life. Five to ten things that you see in your life that would not be there if you didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what that's going to do? It's going to prompt a a gratitude in your life. And so if you're in the doldrums and, and need just a little bit of sunshine back, then look at the hand of God in your life. If you If you find yourself grumbling and complaining and murmuring, You're going to find things to be thankful that the hand of God has been part of your life. And then here's the second thing I want you to do. It's very similar. I want you to take two or three people around you 
And I want you to write five to ten things that you have evidences of God's grace you see in their life, growth you've seen in their life, change you've seen in their life, things that would not be in their life if it weren't for Jesus. I want you to write those down. And I want you to call or write a letter or do something that then delivers that message to them. I just want to say how thankful I am to God because I see these things in your life. And what you're going to do is take somebody that you don't even know that they need it, but God knows. And you don't even know how big a difference or impact or encouragement or or freshness that it's going to give to their soul that they're going to need. And so look at your microgroup, look at your Sunday school class, look at your leaders. Who is somebody that you can look at and just say, here's some things I see of God in your life, and I want to encourage you with that. So spur thanksgiving in your own heart, spur encouragement in the life of others. That's what we see kind of playing out in this, this first part of the text. And so he begins with a very normal greeting. By the way, I don't know why we don't do this, but they were very smart with letters in the, old, in the ancient world. They put the author first. You didn't have to read to the end to figure out who wrote it. They just told you. So author, recipients, uh, and then some sort of well-wish or some sort of greeting. And so it follows very much that same pattern. Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy. Um, so the, all three of them were part of the founding of the church. All three of them are part of the agreeing to write the letter and part of the letter. Paul being the primary point person in writing it. Now, if you'll notice, though, this is one of the very few letters where Paul does not add the apostle or some other designation, Paul, and then some other character trait. And the reason they think that is is because Paul did not need his authority to do anything in the lives of the Thessalonians. Paul used his relational influence to encourage the Thessalonians. They didn't need apostle Paul to come get them straight. They needed Paul, their friend, Paul, their father, Paul, their spiritual father, to come in and encourage them. And they would receive what he had to say. And then it's the gathering of the Thessalonians or the assembly of the Thessalonians. That's a very normal Roman word. They just had assemblies everywhere. So what's special about this one? It's the assembly of the Thessalonians that defines them. And then what identifies them different from any other Roman assembly in Thessalonians at the time? They are defined and they are identified by their relationship to God the Father and their relationship to Jesus Christ. You are the assembly that belongs to God and is identified by God. You're the assembly that comes through Jesus Christ. And then he gets into this well-wishing, and he says, We give thanks. Now, we give thanks is the main governing verb and main governing concept of all of these ten verses. And then from that, we give thanks, structurally speaking, there's three supporting verbs that then flesh it out. And so supporting verb one, we give thanks mentioning you in our prayers. We pray for you constantly. We give thanks, remembering. We remind ourselves of what we've seen, the evidence of the gospel in your life. And then the third one, it says we know, but it it should be on the same parallel track. Knowing that you're loved by God and chosen by God. And so those are the three things that flesh out Paul's thankfulness. Here's why I'm thankful. Here's how I respond when I'm thankful. And so he starts out with like, here's what I do. I give thanks to God And that thankfulness leads me to pray for you. And so there's this consistency in my prayer life. When I pray, you come up. When I pray, I bring you for the Father. When I pray, I I pray for your faithfulness. I pray for him to secure you. I pray for him to keep you going and keep you, you growing. I pray for you every time I pray. And then look at the motivators of thanksgiving. What motivates this thanksgiving to God? What does Paul list? And this is why I gave you that exercise to begin with. Remembering. 
Right? So, and he's going to go into, here's what the gospel looks like in y'all. Like, there's evidence. The gospel is visible by the way you live your lives. The gospel is visible because of how changed you are when the gospel came to you. And so, I remember how obvious it was that the gospel saved you. And so, I remember these things about you. And when I remember these things about you, thanksgiving is the result to God when I do it. Remembering what? Your work of faith. Your work produced by faith. And so we talk all the time like your works don't earn credit with God. Your works don't save you. Your works don't make you have a relationship with God. Your works are you have a fresh affection because you have been saved. You have a fresh treasuring of Jesus because you have been saved. And that fresh change, that fresh affection, that fresh treasuring of Jesus above the worthless stuff of this world shows up by your works. And so James talks about it this way, right? You say you have faith. I can't see it. I will show you what faith looks like by my works. And he's not condemning by, by grace alone through faith alone. What is he saying is when you have real saving faith, you better believe it will be obvious to the people around you because it's going to show up in your works. It's worthless to just say, yeah, I've got faith. If somebody could not figure out by the way you live your life, if they were close enough to it, and if somebody can't figure out there's something different about you because you belong to Jesus, then you got a real reason to be like, is Jesus really the Savior of my life? Because faith works. No, you don't work to be saved. No, you don't work for brownie points with God. But if you are genuinely saved, you will work because it's the, out, the natural outflow of saving faith is working faith. I've seen your work of faith. I've seen the Christian life you live of service and relationships and mission and care and obedience and abiding. I've seen what faith looks like in your lives. And I want to say how thankful, how it produces thanksgiving in my life to God when I see it. And second, your labor of love. The labor, the strenuous work that is produced by your love. The strenuous work that is produced by your love. Love for people is not just something you say. I think when we think about love, we think about like a Valentine's Day candy box shaped in a heart. Like, this is love. Now, you know what love looks like? It looks like garden gloves that are dirty on hands that are dirty, on knees that are dirty, as you dig in the dirt and labor, killing or dying to self to love and to serve another person. That's what love looks like. It's not nearly so so frilly as a doily, it is much dirtier than that because it works hard. It's strenuous, sweating, self-sacrificing labor. That's what we call love. And that's why it is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And you can't do it naturally because it is the fruit of the Spirit. Because we don't die to self naturally. We don't die for other people naturally. We don't sacrifice our comforts and our time and our energy and put ourselves in a loss to help other people naturally. That doesn't happen. But there's a labor that your love produces, and it can look a thousand ways. It looks like calls. It looks like hospitality. It looks like having people over. It looks like relationships. It looks like speaking the truth in love. It looks like all a, a, a thousand different manifestations. It's a labor that comes from Love. You know what else it looks like? It doesn't look like caring about people that are just like you. It doesn't look like caring about people that have the same economics as you, the same ethnicity as you, 
the same interest level as you, the same politics as you. That's not love. God's kind of love crosses what is natural, crosses the barriers that separate lost normal people. God's kind of love breaks those things down and puts a bond when it's hard and puts a bond when it's different. It's a labor of love. And so do we step back and look at our lives and be like, man, I I can see faith work itself out. I can see it doing something. And I think love is probably, especially today, one of those primary things. When I step back, is there any kind of sacrifice in my life to take care of other people? Is there any kind of death to self, death to preferences, death to not being concerned about our our differences that make us uncomfortable anymore? Is there any kind of that death in my life for the sake of another person? Labor of love. And then look at this. Endurance that is produced by hope. This world is fallen, which means it is going to crash on you sometimes. It means it's going to bring suffering. It means it's going to bring hardship. It means it's going to bring stress. It means it's going to bring uh, affliction. It means it's going to bring suffering. It's going to bring circumstances. How do we handle them? Because I'm tempted to run. Or I'm tempted to just resign myself to gritting through it and grinning and bearing it and just get through. So I'll just resign myself to fate. I'm tempted to get angry and just explode. But what is it that Paul sees in their life that he wants to commend for our lives that produce thanksgiving to God in the middle of all this hardship and suffering? There is a steadfastness I see in your life that comes from hope and only hope it comes from a confidence in who god is and a confidence in what god says because there's no other foundation that stands right now in the middle of what you're going through the active faithful waiting the active faithful walking when things are hard that's what hope is it's not resignation it's not withdrawing it's not escaping it's actively walking when it's hard There's a steadfastness and hope. And so I want us to step back and I want us to look at our lives and ask, how visible is our faith? How visible is our faith? Not a show we put on, but the actual internal transformation that works itself outward. How visible is it? How visible is our faith? How how obvious is our love? How obvious is it when we keep standing faithfully and actively without withdrawing? Only because there's hope that Jesus is coming back and for no other reason. And so as you look in your life, what do you see? Do you see love that puts on work gloves and digs through the thorns and the briars and the stick in your feet and stick in your hands? Stuff that comes from wading through real love. Do you, do you feel that? Do you have the calluses to prove that? What does it look like? Do you see it in your life? And then he, he moves on from there for this last supporting verb of knowing of this is what we know right and this is what produces thanksgiving he talks about your love you are loved by god and chosen by god is what he points out there and so what is it that produces thanksgiving what i remember about the evidence of your conversion what else gives me gratitude i know that you're loved by god and i know that you're chosen by god now we're tempted to make that theological and it is 
But we're tempted to make that a doctrine we espouse. But why does Paul put it here? Because these people are facing the real world. They are suffering for the gospel they embrace. And when you're suffering, what questions come to your mind? Does God care? Is this real? Because if you're in the middle of suffering, you're not worried about your theological points. You're worried about the reality. Is God's care for you real? And what does Paul say? Brothers, in all your suffering, God's love for you has not changed. In all your hurt and all your outrage and all your pain, God's love is still there. Is this real? Is it real for me? He chose you, grabbed you, saved you, secures you, and you can't be lost. Encouragement and assurance are the point of the doctrine. Encouragement and assurance are the point of what he's saying right here. Now look at it. It comes through human agency. We brought the word. The word came to you. The gospel came to you by real people. You saw what kind of lives we had among you. Verse 5. We were proven in our character. So our message and our character were the same. That, that's the why, right? You're chosen. How do I know you're chosen? Because the gospel came. Because... Our lives matched it. And then look what else. God attested to his gospel. God used his gospel as the means of saving. And so you saw power. You saw miraculous signs that accompanied the ministry of Paul. And when you saw that, that was part of what God used to bring you to saving faith. The Holy Spirit flipped the light switch on. He is the illuminator of, of a dead heart to an alive heart. He flicks the light switch on. He illuminates the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is at work in the gospel message and full conviction. Right? And so we see, like, remember, be encouraged. Remember, be assured. God's love for you hasn't changed. His choosing of you hasn't changed. The gospel's keeping of you hasn't changed. Remember how it came to you in message and in lifestyle that matched with the power, of the Spirit, or with the power and with the Holy Spirit and conviction. And so we see that. Uh, I'm going to dive into verse 5 a little bit later because it connects to the next point. But what I do want to point out is this. Throughout Thessalonians and right here and for you and me, the kind of life that can be seen and proven in you has a huge bearing on the kind of message that anybody is ever going to receive from you. Do you see that? The gospel came not in word only. It came with words. And we... You know what kind of people we were. You tested us. You evidenced us. And we proved out to be a certain kind of people. Message and life. Message and messenger. And so the quality of life you live will always be connected to the kind of message somebody will receive from you. And so again, how has God worked in your life? Five to ten ways. To spur thanksgiving and encouragement in you. How has God worked in some people close to you? To spur thanksgiving and encouragement in them. The second thing, gospel impact we should be thankful for. When we as imitators become examples to others. When we as imitators become examples to others. Just to make it short and sweet. All of us are influenced by somebody. All of us imitate somebody. We become like somebody or something. Culture, social media, friends, parents, teachers, someone... It will never be default Jesus. It will never be neutral 
so I'm like Jesus. Not only are we all influenced by someone, we imitate someone, and you do. Whether you see it or not, you do soak culture in and imitate some parts of culture by default. It won't be Jesus by default. But the second thing will also be true. You have influence over others. There is somebody watching you. And it won't do any good to say, it's not my responsibility. I didn't ask for it. I don't want it. I don't care. You have it. How will you use it? And so it becomes very important to say, I need to intentionally surround myself with people that when I absorb their lives, imitate them, I'm going to be more like Jesus because of it. And I need to be very intentional about the kind of investment I make in the lives of others because they're going to absorb that as well. We are all imitators and we are all being imitated. We are all influenced by someone and we all have influence over others. We be intentional about who influences you and how you influence others. Let's move into the text here as we, as we jump in and look at it. So in verse 5, he, he talks about you have, have observed us, you've seen us, you've lived up close to us. Notice that? Like Paul's ministry was not abstract, sitting on a stage and disconnected from all the people. Like I lived and walked among you so closely that you could see me and then you could test and prove what kind of people we were. And when you saw us and you tested and you proved us and approved of us, what did you do? You imitated of us. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. That is, you began to resemble our lives and you began to resemble our teaching. Right? Because the Lord is present through his teaching there. And so you imitate our lives and you became like us. And when you became like us, guess who else you became more like? Jesus. And when you imitated the teaching, you obeyed the teaching, you lived out the teaching, you became more like Jesus. And so this is a key theme throughout most of Paul's letters. Imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Follow me as I follow the Lord. And so look, you proved us, you saw us, you became like us, you became like the teaching of Jesus. You imitated us. Now, there's an insert as to another thing that happened too, right? You received the word with much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. So look at that. When the Thessalonians embraced the gospel, they knew for a fact one thing. If I say yes to this, I say yes to suffering. If I'm saved by this, I will suffer for this. Do you see that? You receive the gospel word with much affliction. Gospel suffering. Gospel affliction. Gospel pressure. Side by side. Connected. And they knew what they were getting into. But what was the gain and what would they have missed if they had said, no, that's a little too hard? They'd have missed joy. Because gospel and suffering produce joy in the Holy Spirit. Or allow you to experience joy in the Holy Spirit that can't be experienced any other way. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy that comes from a relationship to the Spirit that adopts you into the family of God through the gospel. Joy that is a product of a Spirit-given joy. And so, you saw us, you proved us, you imitated us, and then what happened? You became the example to Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia, the northeast, northeast of Greece, Bulgaria area, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Achaia being Greece proper, Athens and Corinth. Um, so the whole region that you occupy... You became an example to them. Now, this is the only church in the New Testament that the whole church is an example to others. 
There's individual examples, but this is the only church that's a a church-wide example. And so when the churches of Corinth, when the churches of Athens, when the churches of Philippi face suffering, they can look and say, the Thessalonians have suffered. They are an example. When, When they want to know, like, what does faith look like in our world right now? They have an example that can show us what faith looks like in that world. How do we love each other well in a world like this? They can look at the Thessalonians and they have an example that they can follow. They have a pattern of what it looks like so they can endure and a pattern of what it looks like so that they can be faithful and a pattern of what it looks like so that they can uh, model it themselves. And this is what reproducing discipleship is, right? It is a relationship-based ministry where my life and my teaching is invested into someone else. That life and teaching is absorbed into someone else and then modeled and given to, to the next person, the next generation. That's what we're calling to. That's exactly what is in this text. You became, or you became imitators, and when you became imitators, you became examples to all of these churches. And so are you intentional about who influences you? Are you intentional about the kind of influence you have over others? It's so easy to be uncritical about what comes into your heart and into your mind. What comes through a screen. So easy. It's so easy to be thoughtless in what kind of example and model you give to others. But it is so powerfully shaping those things that come in and those things that are shown out. So be thankful for gospel impact when you see evidence of salvation and gospel power. Be thankful when you see that as an imitator, you're starting to become an example as God grows you and shapes you and changes you and gives you influence. And then lastly, be thankful when the word of our faith, the word and our faith match to reach and encourage others. Be thankful when the word and our faith match to reach and encourage others. Every so often, I'll, I'll run into somebody, more than every so often, and they're like, oh, man, I met one of your members the other day. Wow, what a blessing they were. They were, good, they were gracious. They were kind. They were helpful. They were generous. They'll brag on you. And really often, I'll, I'll meet with people or I'll run into people, usually at Three Tree, just saying. And uh, they're like, man, I met some of your college students. And they're awesome. Wow, it was so impressive, their love for Jesus. It was so impressive how serious they take their faith. I didn't ask these kind of questions. I didn't have these kind of conversations when I was that age. And they'll brag on you. And it fills my heart up, not because I'm proud and you're a Fletcher person. It fills my heart up because what they see is the evidence of God in your life. And that's exactly what we see happen in this last part of chapter 1. See, the word went out from you, it says. The word sounded out. It blasted from Thessalonica. And so they took the mission seriously. They took the gospel seriously. And so whether that is people who are in a major hub, port city, where all kinds of trade is going east and west, and all kinds of ships are coming in and out, and they just have a faithful witness of radical life transformation and missional living, and it's like they shared the gospel, and they show off these radically changed lives where their jobs are and what they do in the city, and, and it reaches people who are going to another city so, so that they're mission is living a missional life here to send people that, that receive it and go out everywhere else. So the word sounded forth either by their faithful missional living where they were in their city, or maybe they're part of the trades. And maybe their mission is they would travel the trade routes as, as carriers or, or shippers of some sort, and they would share the gospel along the way. We don't know. But what we do know is that the gospel message 
sounded out, echoed, exploded out of Thessalonica to all of the areas of influence around Thessalonica. It went through the whole region as, they, as ships and cargo came down into to Greece and Athens and Corinth. And it went all over that east-west trade route. The word sounded forth so much so that Paul says in a second, like, we don't have any need to say anything. I don't show up anywhere where the gospel isn't because of what you've done. But it isn't just their gospel message. Through missional living and everyday engagements, the sharing of the gospel. And yes, some of them became missionaries who went somewhere else, probably. But their everyday faithfulness to the gospel message, to declaring the gospel message and living the gospel message, filled the area up with the gospel. And then look at the second part. And your faith in God has gone forth. Meaning your lifestyle, your gospel lifestyle has gone forth. The The faith life that you have has been heard everywhere. And so everywhere the gospel goes, along goes with it the testimony of these guys were radically changed. These guys are different than they were before this gospel came to them. Gospel message and gospel transformation have sounded out everywhere in the region. So that there's nothing else for Paul to say. Now that's the goal. The goal is that you go live gospel lives wherever you go. All week long. And you open your mouth with the gospel message that matches that gospel lifestyle everywhere you go. And if somebody shows up in church or doesn't show up in church, it's irrelevant because the gospel message has gotten to them right where they are. And it says it's gone everywhere. It's gone everywhere. The community has been filled with the gospel. And what was the content? What was the report? You turn from dead idols. You turn from powerless idols who can't hear, who can't speak, who can't answer when the world burns and can't answer when your world falls apart. They're deaf and they're dumb and they're powerless and you turn from them. But you didn't just turn from them. You turn to something. You turn to a God who's alive. You turn to the God who is true, the God who hears, the God who answers, the God who cares, the God who sustains, the God who changes. You turn to him and you served him. You turn to him and now you're actively waiting on him. You're actively waiting on his son to come back. You're living like Jesus is going to come back. You're enduring like Jesus is going to come back. You're sharing the gospel like Jesus is really going to come back. And you're waiting actively, living actively in light of the son's return. And by the way, to turn back to dead idols would be so crazy. Because you have a living God. But it would also be so crazy because there's a resurrected Jesus. And Jesus alone will keep you from the wrath that's coming on mankind. You see that? That's the report about the Thessalonians. That's what's going all over the world is that there's a a living God that you can turn to. And that's why I say it's both for the lost, the gospel went out, and for the saved. The encouragement of other churches and their faithfulness and their gospel witness and their impact came back to or, or spread from church to church. And you think about how would we respond if we got reports from all over the country? I just want you to know. Gospel is going crazy here. People are being radically saved here. People are being transformed here. Would that encourage you? What if, because we commission our graduates, right? What if we start getting reports that our graduates join churches in the cities they go to? And what if we start getting reports that those graduates make real difference in the lives of people for the gospel and real difference in the lives of people uh, being saved and real difference in discipleship relationships really shaping people's lives differently? What's that going to do to your faith? What's that going to do to our encouragement? That's exactly what we want to see happen. And so, let me just close with a few practical things. I know I was long-winded today. 
If you're at home, you can tune me out, and it'd be all right. Nobody would know. But if not, here we go. First, look for faith, love, and hope in your daily life. So easy to get in the doldrums. It's so easy, like, grumbling and just like, I'm ready for this junk to be over. So easy to be, to be so hurt deeply by the affairs of this world. So easy to be like, I just want coronavirus to end and things to be normal. And if you want to break free from the big or the little doldrum strains for us of your life, fill your mind by looking at the things that you can remember and be thankful for. Look for the evidences of faith in your life and others. Look for God's work in your life and others. Look for love in your life and others. It does not matter what is happening in any city in the country right now. I guarantee you if you were to walk into those cities and and talk to as many people as you possibly could, you'd find all this horror and outrage. But you know what else you would find? You would find evidences of grace. You would find people that are loving in the middle of it. If you look for it, you can find those, those moments because God is at work everywhere. All right, sorry. Look for faith, hope, and love in your daily life. Second, who's influencing you? Who are you influencing? I think we've hit that. Who's influencing you and who are you influencing? You need to be real intentional about what you're letting in and how much of it. You'd be real intentional what you're giving out. Topple idols and turn back to God. I doubt many of you have any gold statues sitting at home that you bow down to. But there are things that capture your heart and promise you the good life. There are things that capture your heart and you're putting your hope in them. There's things that capture your heart and you're banking the good life on them. Yourself, your stuff, or others is probably some categories to look into. And you're banking on them. And they're going to provide for you. They're going to take care of you. Or they're gone right now and you're, you're melting down over it. They are powerless when you need them. They won't answer. They won't answer. So turn back to God. He's a living God who will hear you. He's a loving God who has adopted you and cares for every tear you cry. He is an active God who works in you and works in the world around you. And lastly, eat, bless, and share with you. Here's my challenge for you. Thessalonians will take us all the way through the summer, probably into maybe the first week of August or so. Do not leave the Thessalonians series without a commitment that you will have shared the gospel with one person before it's over. One person. Ten weeks, nine weeks, eight weeks. One person. Make a commitment right now that in the next ten weeks... You will have shared the gospel with one person, that you will have opened your table, you will open your home, you will open your life, you will open your relationships, and you will open your mouth with the gospel. Be thankful for a gospel impact. Be thankful for the gospel impact. And if that's what you start looking for is gospel impact, you will never run out of things to be thankful so that you can absolutely obey chapter 5. Give thanks in all circumstances. But this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you look for the right things, you'll find them. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, make us thankful. Would you give us joy in the midst of sorrow, Father? Would you give us hearts bursting with gratitude where grumbling has been in the past and murmuring and discontent and, 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 and just dullness? Would you fill us with gratitude again? Would you show us by the work of your Holy Spirit how you've worked in our lives, how you've worked in others' lives? Would you show us that, God? Give us eyes to see it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we we close in song together.